0: Hey everyone, so this week you get to hear from
1: My name's Clayton Hinchman, And we were both West Point Class 2005
0: Where we knew each other and would hang out with some of the same people But we really got to know each other well in the first two phases of Ranger School At Fort Benning and in the mountains of Dahlonega, North Georgia Until this happened I had an ND that was terrible (laughs) And you you moved on without me
1: And uh, I was was right behind you when that happened, I remember that I've never had my stomach sink so low
0: Again, like I said in the last episode about Ryan, if Clay and I find ourselves together anywhere in the future, we'll bond over a beard and share everything about our lives, like we have done a few times in the last few years. One thing that has always been clear about him is that he is the uncommon soul who is just naturally a leader. He's literally one of the best leaders I've ever been around. You watch him and it almost seems effortless. I'd be willing to bet that anyone listening to this has either been strongly recommended or has taken it upon themselves to read the musings on leadership ad nauseum of some person that has either had a slight smile or a stern face dressed in earthy tones in their headshot. According to Forbes, it's a $366 billion industry. Books, conferences, no doubt a lot of which is snake oil. Clay and I are going to talk about the things that make him the leader he is from his background and time in the military. Then, how that makeup brought him through the experience of losing a leg in combat, adjusting to his new life, and to a great amount of success in business. The recipe is simple. There's no secret sauce and no magic tricks. I think Clay lays it out very well, and I think you'll feel the same way. Welcome to No Shit, There I Was, a podcast committed to telling the stories you may never otherwise hear. So settle in, kick back, and take it all in. This week's episode is brought to you by Emblem Athletic. You know the difference between being on a punishing run by yourself and on one with your unit? Alone, you appear to hate happiness, and with a team, you look like a part of a Rocky Montage. Let the Emblem Athletic crew help your team look like it's about to take on Ivan Drago with high performance athletic gear that dyes your design right into the fabric.
1: So first we'll kick
0: off with a quick overview from Clay.
1: I, I was born in a small town in San Benito, Texas in uh, the very southern tip of Texas in uh, 1982. And about the age of five or six my family moved to a small town called Angleton, Texas, which is about 45 minutes south of Houston, a little town, not very big. Um, It was actually surrounded by five prisons, which is what my biological father did was a prison guard, which is how we ended up there. And there's a lot of signs that say, don't pick up hitchhikers on the highway, which I still think is funny to this day, because that's how I grew up. And uh, that's a true story. I, I played football, baseball, ended up playing soccer my senior year. I did speech and drama, I was an altar boy in the Catholic Church till I was 18 years old and was active in a lot of things. And then I got a flyer that said something about West Point. Nobody in my family was in the military so that I knew. It wasn't really a part of my culture, but I knew that it was difficult, and I had heard hard things about West Point. And uh, I made a comment in a theater arts class when I was a sophomore, and I still remember there was a young lady who was a junior, who I said, hey, I'm going to go to West Point. They're asking where you're going to go. And she laughed in my face, said, you'll never get in. And from that day forward, I was like, all right, fuck it. I'm going to West Point. And so I didn't apply to any other school. I got recruited to play football at some small schools, but I did not turn in an application to any other school other than West Point. I had a screw put into my shoulder Christmas of my junior year from a football injury. So I actually got medically turned down for West Point. And once again, I was like, fuck this, I'm going. So I had to go back to my doctor and do all these additional tests. because, so, As Joey knows, there's getting the nomination, but you also have to get your medical form. There's a the, there's the physical fitness test. So I, I did well on the physical fitness test, but they kept telling me my shoulder was going to be bad because I have a screw in there. And so I went back and did all these tests in addition to the other physical tests, and uh, they gave me a waiver. And so I didn't actually know I was accepted or got my nomination until prom of my senior year and other than that i really didn't have a backup plan uh, i just kind of was arrogant enough to think that's where i was going so went to west point you know i guess i sucked as a student i was a straight c student but military and physical did okay i had a lot of fun i walked on the football team which which was great well kind i never played but i was in new york city the weekend before the towers came down and you know the lucky part was is You know, I got to see New York City and all of its glory and all of its craziness, 18 years old, trying to sneak into places you're not supposed to try to get into. And then the towers came down. And from then on out, you know, I stopped caring about football. I stopped, you know, I I didn't know at the time that I really just stopped caring about a lot of things. It took me probably a decade to realize how, how much that had affected me as a person. And, you know, the tower's coming down. I was like, I'm fighting. This is what I'm doing. And then luckily the next summer we did the infantry training and the infantry week and you sleep in the mud. And I just thought that was the funniest shit in the world because you would see people just crying and it's, yeah, it's wet and it's cold, but you're not going to die, you know? And I enjoyed that. And the same happened at ranger school. I mean, I, you know, so, uh, did OBC with you and airborne school, ranger school, you know, lucky enough, was able to go straight through ranger school. And uh, I picked 10th Mountain because I wanted to go to Afghanistan, got to Fort Drum, and my orders were 3rd Brigade. And the next thing I know, I walk in the door like, oh, we changed your orders. And I was in 1st Brigade and ended up in Triple Deuce Infantry Battalion and was going to wait a year to go to Iraq, which is really where I didn't want to go. I really wanted to go to Afghanistan. And then, you know, the rest is history, deployed and lost a leg and got wounded and all that stuff. So that's how I ended up in the army. That's how I, that's really how I got there. Yeah. Wow. Don't let Clay fool you here. He's also
0: started a company, sold it, taken on leadership positions at other companies and run for Congress. So there's a little bit more to it than that. Is there anything that you can think of even all the way up to now? Are there any traits or any habits or attitudes that have existed with you, even from high school, or maybe you developed them at West Point that that really stick out, that really have gotten you to where you are now?
1: Yeah, no, 100%. I 100% know the answer to that. So, I mean, I like I said, I, my parents were divorced when I was young. My mom was lucky enough to get remarried to a great guy who raised her three kids. I'm from marriage three, my brother and sister from marriage two, uh, marriage four. He's my dad now. Gary Cooper's his name. He raised me and taught me how to be a man. But when I was young, I didn't know that it took me losing my leg and like almost 30 to realize what he had, what he taught me. And I've told, I've told him this to his face. He knows this. He wasn't a cuddly man. He worked, but he told us, you know, he married my mother and he was going to take care of us. And that's what you do. I ate, I had food. I had a house for the first time. You know, I wasn't living in an apartment with my mom, my brother and sister, you know, we weren't eating lentils every day, which is what we used to eat. And so I was like, damn, you have a house and a garage? This is like, this is amazing. And so I guess I always search for that family mentality, which is why, you know, because I was broken, you know. And then my older brother was a great role model for me. He was a hardworking dude. He still is today. Mm-hmm. He's a federal officer in Houston. Great. He's a great man. And, you know, he was a good role model. Not always when you're, you know, a kid, you know, you do dumb stuff too. But I was searching for a family. So when you were on my sports team, I was your guy. And that jersey meant something to me. Being in West Point, you know, we run into classmates nowadays that I probably wasn't friends with or I didn't know 20 years ago, whatever it is. And I'll give them the biggest hug. I lose my mind when I see our classmates, even if they hated me at West Point or I hated them, none of that shit matters because West Point was West Point, you know, that that is what that is. But I see them and I'm like, you're the same. We have the same heritage. We're the same. We come from the same place. And so, you know, that was, like I said, that was the same thing for me. I wanted to be a part of a family. I wanted to be a part of a team. Um, I want to be a part of a winning team. And that has led me through high school, I believe, through West Point in the military. You know, this is my platoon. This is my company. This is my battalion. This is my task force. And then the same thing with business. You know, I got out early because of my injury, but it's the same thing in my company is my company is my company. These are my people. And you know how it is. You can, you can trash talk your own family, but as soon as somebody, someone outsider ever tries to dog your family I'm, we're done, and I mean it's it's squabbing time, you know. So I I think that from being from a broken home and trying to find a family, I found it in different places throughout my life. Where I meet like minded people who I have a tremendous amount of respect for, and I know put out the same effort towards the family as as I did. So I guess that's where it comes from.
0: Yeah, I and mean, that's awesome because people that go into the military, even if they're not looking for it, you know, that, that, like you were, you knew that's what you what you needed, and that's what you wanted. Is, yeah. to, is to belong. Some people find belonging even though they're not looking for it. And, and so, <laughs> but then, you know, this is a topic I've talked about with a few other people. When they get out, all of a sudden that's gone and they don't know how to create it for themselves. Yeah. And, and so that's is so accurate about the entire experience. But as far as your time at, you know, when we were at school, you already talked about what your experience was, it was like. The academic was. Sounds like a lot like my academic experience. <laughs> I did yeah. not graduate top. Yeah. I uh, as a juxtaposition for what you're saying, I was assigned to go to Korea, and I was fighting for a spot to try to go to Iraq. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but does anything? I know you pointed out, you know, 2001, and you know, there's plenty that's talked about with our class as far as 9/11 is concerned, class yep. of 9/11. But is there anything about that experience that really sticks out to you that has impacted you? Or was that a lot of that stuff earlier in West Point was just kind of like, hey, this is my route to get to the Army. This is my <laughs> this is my goal, and I'm going to get everything out of it.
1: No, man. I, I have to be honest. I was so defensive at West Point and probably an A-hole to a lot of people and probably different facets. And maybe a lot of us were because we were graded and we competed on every single thing. Yeah. And my best friends – you, there was like this animosity. I mean, I'm, Randall Waters is my roommate for hell, almost three years. I, I love, love the Randy. man. You know, I, I love the man like a, well, he is, he's my brother. He's my children call him uncle. You know, he's my yeah. family. Uh, and his wife, she's an aunt, you know. Hell, we even competed because you're, you compete on everything. And so that competition has been bred in us. When I was in high school, I did all the sports, church, speech, drama. I was always busy. But when I got there, the biggest thing for me looking back on, was how amazing our classmates, you know, we've got people that are running nine minute, two miles, doing 180 pushups in two minutes and like 200 sit-ups in two minutes. And I'm going...
0: There's a little exaggeration there.
1: What in the <laughs> world? And yeah. then they're making straight A's. Yeah, but definitely no exaggeration on that. And I'm like, who, how did God create this thing? Like you're not even, like you're a creature to me. Just machines. Yeah. Yeah. And they understood everything and everything just came easy. And when that happened to me, you know, I remember just thinking to myself, you know, there's some people that crumble, they quit, they leave. You Absolutely. Know? And that changed me because I'm like, shit, I got to work harder because I'm not going to fail. I'm not going to fail. But, you know, competing with some of those people was an everyday, like gut check of how much you suck. You know, like you wake up every day and you're like, I suck because this woman or man, whoever they were, you know, they're crushing whatever it is. And you're like, I hate them, but I only hate them because they're way better than me. No, that's
0: completely true. I remember it is a complete multifaceted evaluation of you. Oh, yeah. That entire institution is. And I remember getting there, and, and that's one of the first times I ever really felt inadequate around peers. Oh, God, yeah. You know, I'd met like other really great athletes in high school, and I was oh. like, "Wow, that person's definitely a better athlete than I am." Yeah. But i had never been in a place where every day I was around people that were like, "This person's smarter than me." Yep. They're faster than me. Yep. They're stronger than me. Yep. Every day.
1: Yep. That's oh. no, that's a I 100% agree with you. That's the biggest thing I remember about it. But I but I remember thinking to myself, and I learned it from our classmates was that anything's possible. Yeah, oh, yeah. You know, because you'd meet some people where stuff didn't come easy to them. And you couldn't stop them. They'd run through a brick wall to get what they wanted. And hell, I just try to hang out with those people and get a little bit of that to rub off on me. Because they were, you know, the people where stuff comes easy to them, I don't really want to be around them. Yeah. Because as soon as it becomes hard, they quit. Absolutely. You know, when you get around them grinders that every, they've had to earn and they've had to work for everything they have, I'm like, baby, come come into my life because I need some of you to rub off on me. Yeah. And that's all I thought about was you never quit. You just keep going. And that's... I learned, I think I learned that at West Point and I didn't learn it from teachers. I learned it from my classmates.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely true. And I definitely learned that no matter what, you just put one foot in front of the other. If you can do that, then you can pretty much go through and do whatever you need to yeah. do every day. But so progressing through, I don't know, we didn't even have to talk about IOBC because that was just like the, <laughs> <laughs> the easiest, <laughs> hey, let's just get ready for Ranger School. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah,
1: that was a, that was a bunch of buffoonery. That's what that was.
0: It really was. So, Going through Ranger School, you went on to be the honor grad.
1: I remember a buddy Andy Flagle asked me one time, he was like, how in the world, Meathead, were you the honor graduate? And I said, you know, there were two things that I was the honor graduate. Is like guys like you and Brian Stoltz. Brian was my Ranger buddy. He saved me shit a ton of times. But I think I had like 10 major pluses when I graduated because I was always a team leader for like the good dudes. And I was terrified of letting you guys down. If I was a squad leader and I failed, I could live with that, but if I ever failed a buddy, it would haunt my shit for the rest of my life. Like, I couldn't deal with it. Yeah. And then like you would see grown men who would like lack of motivation in the middle of a swamp and then they still have to walk out of the swamp. And you're like, Why would you quit? Like just keep like you still have to keep going. Yeah. You know, you'd see that all the time, like, Oh, do you give up? Yeah, I give up. Lack of motivation. Well, dummy, you still gotta walk the three clicks out of the yeah. swamp.
0: And guess what? You still have to wait till the morning until somebody comes and picks you up. Yeah. Like you're still gonna be miserable.
1: <laughs> so no, hundred percent.
0: I wasn't surprised to me because I saw you every day and I saw really the key traits of the people that that went on on and did that were the same thing that you just talked about. Everybody has bad days in ranger school. Everybody has bad days in life. But the difference is those people that step up even though you're having a bad day, you find the moments where you need to step up and you go ahead and step up for other people. And I'll have my time later where I can kind of just be part of the, the group. Moving on from ranger school, you go to your first unit. What was that experience
1: like? <laughs> so I was on Rear D for like a week, I think. Rear detachment is, you know, the guys that are left behind while everybody else is deployed. Yeah. They, they were in Iraq. They were coming home. Okay. They were actually in Kuwait, and we were waiting for gear and all this other stuff. And I don't really remember much about it, just doing some PT, had some ragtag soldiers hanging out, you know. And, but I remember one guy, I won't use his name, he was a young private and this guy was just, just a big mess. Just everything about this guy. Well, he was from, He was actually from Brooklyn, I think. I'm like, oh my god, this guy's amazing. So anyway, so I did my job on rear D, the little admin duties. But my first day back, our battalion commander was a West Point guy, mm-hmm. and our soldiers loved this guy. Man, he he was it. like a, a leader. This guy was it. I've heard stories about him, and you just saw the way that his men acted around him. You knew that the respect was there, and I'll we'll get into that later. But I mean, because I had another botanic commander, and it was a completely flip flop. Both West Pointers, but 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 no, uh, I just be honest with you, man. And uh, so he tab checked me and Tom, and he goes, "All right, I'm sending you Delta Company." So we go down there, and I mean, just Delta Company was just kind of an interesting experience, you know. But my first day as the platoon leader, that same private who was a mess, I had to go to his UCMJ action.
0: That's the Uniform Code of Military Justice, basically the legal system for all military.
1: For cocaine and a bunch of other stuff where he had been found naked in the wire in Iraq. Wow. Because he, yeah, yeah. And I was like, <laughs> word, they did not teach me this at West Point. This is not <laughs> what I learned. But, you know, I sat through that UCMJ action and and uh, they ended up kicking him out of the army, unfortunately. But, um, you know, he had, he had issues and whatnot. But that was my first day, man. And I was like, wow, this is going to get interesting and then we had you know the other things they don't teach you at west point they gave like a 48 hour pass or something you know for the guys that just came home Mm -hmm. we had three guys die in the first like 10 hours and we had to recall everybody one guy died from like alcohol poisoning and two guys died drunk driving one on a motorcycle the young guy was a private and then the other two guys i think were older ncos and i'm like goodness gracious so you you learned as a leader quickly like man you know you got to watch these guys because they've been in a stressful environment you know, and I'm not, I'm not saying there's any blame. We've all made mistakes, but you know, some of these guys and gals come back and they don't know how to let their hair down. You know, they, you know, and they give their bullshit safety briefing. And I go back to being a leader. You really care about your people and you put forth the effort. So you, you know, how do you do that as a young officer when you've got a 35 year old guy that has been on numerous deployments and then he gets wasted drunk. And does he trust you enough to call you to say, Hey, hey sir I need a ride you know or hey here's a taxi or is there another way as a leader you can solve that problem because I guarantee you we probably lost great combat operations folks oh yeah because they came home and didn't know how to deal with that and then well suicide's a whole nother issue but yeah you know that's just these people don't know how to you know transition back into reintegrate yeah, yeah, yeah reintegrate back to being a normal person and
0: it's one of the parts of, of, of being an officer people don't really talk about a lot. But the wild thing is you don't really get trained about it a lot. And I found that mm. I was part social worker, you know, yeah. and then you would tell folks, hey, listen, if you're getting an argument with your wife and you feel like it's getting too heated, yeah. you need to call somebody and tell them, hey, I, I just need to get out of the situation. Just leave, yeah. It's not even to prevent yourself from doing something that, that would hurt somebody, but take yourself out of the situation and let it cool down, mm. and then you can circle back around to it. And yeah, I can't tell you how many times I ended up in my office as a company commander, you mm-hmm. know, with a married couple trying to keep them separated and talk through whatever's happening. Yep. But when you come back from deployment and people are just trying to get back into their lives because mm-hmm. life has carried on without them yep. and they're trying to figure out where they fit now.
1: Um, no, I, I'm with you hundred percent. It's a, it's a, uh, that is, that is something that you don't learn in the business world. That's a, that's yeah. a thing that, and I think that you're never going to learn all those lessons. That's why I go back to caring. you know, yeah. my battalion commander, the other one used to, he would ask me, you know, your three best traits and your three worst, whatever it is. And, and I always tell him, I care. I'm like, these are my people. I will do anything for my men. And he always would say that that was stupid. And I would say it every time just to piss him off. But because I'm going, you don't understand what that means to me. Saying I'm caring is you and your wife have problems. I'm there for you. You are drunk in a bar, you need a ride. I'm there for you. You have some sort of issue with your child. I'm yeah. there for you. That's not just me reciting some. BS leadership stuff I learned at West Point because they can't give you every answer. So that means I'm going, I'm doing social work. I'm talking to you about your your wife issues when I'm having my own wife issues. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. I'm having my own relationship problems, but that has to come second because you're my people and, and some people never get that. I think that, you know, West Point believes that they can teach and train leaders. And that's, that's true. I think there's a lot of things that you learn from all these service academies but the one thing they can't teach to everybody is: do you care, and do you put forth the effort? And they yeah. can't—they can't do that because we've got a ton of classmates who are smart, great, all this stuff. They're still crap leaders. They're crappy because they were crappy people. Yeah, because oh, I want rank. I want this. I want that. If you want all of that rank and recognition for yourself, you're toxic, and I don't want to be around you. That's true. So, but that's you know, my, my opinion.
0: No, it's true, and. The- are you willing to show up to your soldiers' appointments to help them make the best decision for their family? You know, like, are you willing to do those things that are the extra mile? And there's just so many people that aren't willing to invest that time. No. And the thing they don't understand is if you're someone that's concerned about getting the dividends out of that, you will never find anybody that's more committed to you and to making things successful for your time and leadership yeah. than those people that yeah. you commit your time to.
1: hundred percent, man. Um,
0: but... So you got I guess you got the advantage of going through an entire train up for, for <laughs> Iraq, right? Is that is that am I accurate in yeah, that? Yeah,
1: I did. I oh, did.
0: What was that? I, I never got that. I showed up maybe two or three weeks before my unit Took, to, Yeah you know, went to Kuwait. So I got zero train up. It's like, hey, show up. I actually got my wisdom teeth pulled like two days before I was supposed to fly out. <laughs> 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 so going through that train up, what was that like? You know, you were a, a Delta platoon leader, so is that wheeled?
1: uh yeah yeah we we were the well everybody had humvees we were the um uh, anti-tank the tow missile system yeah yeah and uh yeah so we had we had to do that i don't even think we ever trained on the tow but uh no we did a full year and it was it was an interesting experience man i mean you know i'm like all officers i'm 10th mountain my ncos and soldiers are better than yours wherever you're from 10th mountain's better triple deuce is better by the way just so you know all of you and Delta and Anvil Company were better than everyone else in the world. But no, I. Naturally. No, naturally. Yeah, you know, naturally, yeah. it's common. No, but honestly, man, I, you know, it was like all things. You know, my, my first platoon, I'll be honest with you, I had one NCO. He left my platoon sergeant. And then I had an E6 as my platoon sergeant, who was formerly an E7, had been demoted to E6. You know, he had a little bit too much fun at one point. Still a great guy. And I had no NCOs. I had all specialists. I yeah. had not one NCO. And I actually had to laterally transfer which means you're like a specialist is an E4. I could make them corporals, which gives them hard stripes, which yeah. makes them quasi NCOs. Right. But these guys had done combat deployments and they were all I had. And plus I'd lived with them for about four months. You learn, okay, these, I can trust these guys. These are, these are NCOs. They'll be E5 soon enough. They'll be sergeants soon enough. So uh, we did the standard shooting training, uh, mm-hmm. you know, all that stuff. But Fort Drum's an unforgiving environment. I mean, it is. That's what I hear. You know, it's, it's waist deep snow. I have run a live fire range running through that while shooting, which was, which was so much fun, by the way, but
0: (laughs) I don't know how, but okay. Yeah,
1: it was, you know, it was just amazing. But that goes back to that leadership. You know, we always knew that the battalion staff got their gear before we did. You know, I, I tell people this story all the time. I learned leadership real young. I learned about good and bad leaders and I can just, I only had two battalion commanders. The first battalion commander, he worked for everybody out in the field. Him and his staff, they came second. The guys in the field got what they needed. Second guy, perceived or real, I don't know. But to us, it was, we always came second to his promotion, his staff. We would get chow last. We would get gear last. So I had guys running in waist-deep snow with, like, duct-taped-up stuff. When a damn supply guy shows up from battalion, oh, he's all kitted up. And I'm like, you sit in a heated tent all day. What do you need that for? I got privates who were living below the poverty line who can't even get snow boots i'm like what in the what is this world i'm living in you know joey you know me real well i never really kept my mouth shut about that stuff because you take care of your people and we weren't doing that and i made i don't give a shit if i was a lieutenant everybody's gonna know how i feel through the chain of command if you're not taking care of soldiers and i guess you know maybe that's a fault it's simple man you know you just take care of your people they're gonna take care of the mission they're gonna take care of your customers and business just take care of your people and and i learned that early on but uh but yeah, man, we had a we had an interesting year, and every weekend was a DUI bar fight. My platoon sergeant was a softy. He was the one who was, "Hey, LT, you know they did this. I'm gonna go get them. No, you gonna stay there till Monday morning, and then I'm gonna run you into the ground while you're still hungover and you've been sleeping in a gel all weekend." Well, no, we we gotta take it. No, you know you had these guys that just you know get uncontrollable, and no, I mean it was a, it was a lot of fun. I you know. I probably had a little bit more fun than I should have with some of my soldiers, but I, I, I loved every minute of it, man. I, I love soldiers. They're they're interesting beasts, you know.
0: They are. I think one thing that's kind of short-sold is you, know, you watch any media about soldiers going to Iraq. They treat it like it's like World War 2 where guys went to World War 2 and then like then when they got back it's like oh well you can be discharged and go home and blah blah blah. Mm. You're watching these movies about Iraq and like that's not the what happens. Yeah. So you're still in when you get back and you like yeah, you may get to go home for a couple of weeks. But there's an entire cycle that like units go through. So you come back and you redeploy back home and people get orders and they get sent to another another unit, another base somewhere in the yeah. United States and and you have These units just get completely stripped of their leadership and soldiers. People move all over the place. You know, there's like a core of people that are left back. And then you have to start rebuilding for the next deployment. And so then you get a whole bunch of new people in. It's an interesting dynamic. You have to rebuild a team. So you were, what, 23 at the time? Yeah. 23? Yeah. You're a 23-year-old lieutenant. So you don't really know that much.
1: You don't know, you don't know anything.
0: Yeah. It's like, you know what I'll hate. This is what I learned at school guys, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? And then you've got these senior people coming in. Some of them already have deployments. You know, some of them have a bunch of different stuff. You have, you have a bunch of new privates that are coming in yeah. from school as well. And you've got to build a team to be ready to go to Iraq or yeah. Afghanistan. Yeah. And maybe a year or less. Yeah. You know, so that's an incredible experience. What was it like building that team? And you've got to be the leader in that, in that situation. <laughs>
1: You know man, I I tried to do one thing which was bring intensity because I had young guys and I didn't know I didn't know what right was. Ranger school's a school. Yeah, I mean you know that. It ain't oh, yeah. it's, it ain't life. I kept thinking to myself, I got to be intense. I got to bring it every day. And uh, dude, my favorite movies were like Heartbreak Ridge and Major Pain, like I would just insult the shit out of people and my soldiers <laughs> knew I loved them. They yeah. there's no doubt. I I know for a fact that Every soldier I ever had knew that I loved them, even if they were a turd. I mean, they're still my people, and I was going to do everything I could to train them properly so they could function in combat. That doesn't mean I'm nice to you. I'm there to teach you how to win a war. That's what I'm here to do. And really, that's an NCO's job. You know, an NCO is teaching those soldier skills. Well, I had no NCOs, and I had one NCO. You know, my first platoon sergeant, like I said, he he was – he wasn't as tense as I was. He was kind of a chill guy. And we had these conversations. I mean, we were, you know, first name basis, we're friends. But he was like, you know, you bring it, you're this, and I'm I'm like the parent they don't wanna let down. And there was a part of me that, and I got it. You know, that was the, that was the hand I was dealt. But at the same time, you want like a hard ass platoon sergeant who's meaner than hell to everybody. But we didn't have that, it wasn't his style. So I had to do what I think all good leaders do, is adopt my style and change. So I tried to change the way that, that I operated while also still bringing that intensity. In my company, the first brigade run we had, only me and my buddy I mentioned that took over platoons at the same time mm-hmm. were the only officers that finished the run. Company commander, XO, everybody fell out. No way. Swear to God. Half of the company fell out.
0: And you were just bragging on 10th Mountain a minute ago? Oh, buddy. i
1: <laughs> tell you. So my company commander was new. He showed up out of shape. Other people were weak. And I'm telling you right now, I ended up calling cadence and then leading the run and my buddy Tom ended up acting as like the officer. I can't, we rotated. And I was just, I was furious. I mean, as an officer, you're going to fall out of a run. You're going to, as a leader, you're going to quit. I mean, I couldn't stand it. And so it's, it, st- it still hasn't, obviously you can tell it has an effect on me today because those men need, it's not just leadership. They need, you have to have that intensity. So I tried to bring that every day and Tried to get as good as I could on my skills of what I thought a leader needed to do. You don't have to shoot the best, but you'd be able to shoot pretty, pretty and good. Yeah. You better know your nine line medevac inside and out. As an officer, you shouldn't have to look at any card. You shouldn't have to do any of that. There are things that you know as an officer that are ingrained in you so deeply that you'll never forget. You know, right. you're, And the and the only reason you do that is because you you care so much about your men yeah. that you're not going to not be trained. You know.
0: Yeah, I, I remember the biggest thing, and I, you spoke to it perfectly. Is I was deathly afraid of embarrassing and being embarrassed hmm. by not doing the job that they knew and I knew I was supposed to be able to do. Yep. And that fear of failure drove me an insane amount. Yep. But more importantly, it gave a trust to them that this guy is going to be leading me, and I can trust him that he's going to do the best that he possibly can. Yeah. So that he doesn't let me down. Yep. It's insane that people think that folks don't respond to that because they
1: absolutely do. Oh, 100%, yeah. Oh. I, I had a... So i tell you, so I get into country. I only lost one soldier, Private Nathan Thacker. Two weeks in, I was in Kirkuk, FOB Warrior, the first part. And they hit two mortar rounds about two clicks north of the FOB. Mm-hmm. And this is in Kirkuk. It's in Kurdistan. And back of the truck hits. The driver loses an eye. Gunner's hit in the back. The two guys on the right side of the truck which was one of my weaker E-5s there, you know, they're kind of wounded, but not bad. And Private Thacker unfortunately, was in the back exactly where the blast was and, and you know, was killed. And so and the truck caught on fire and, and we responded and put a guy down we thought was the trigger man and all these other things, you know. And, and so about three or four days later, we're back on another mission and I'm talking to my gunner, who was my, one of my corporals. Uh, great, just another great guy. And he says, hey, you know, LT, I'm, I'm worried, you know, about Sergeant so-and-so What's worried. He goes, well, what happens if something happens to us again? He goes, he goes, man, our men are going to follow an NCO and he's on the truck comms. Right. So the guy in the back can hear me and the driver, my driver, who was also my RTO, another great guy who could hear me. I just told him, I said, Hey, listen to me. I said, so I'll tell you one thing. When soldiers are getting shot at they will not follow anyone who has rank. They will follow that man or woman who's a leader, and who they trust. And if you've built trust, and that only comes from love. I mean, I, I know I I talk about all the time. People talk about love, but I tell my friends all the time, I love them. They're male, female. I don't care. Yeah, you know, because I we've lost friends that I should have told them. You know, I'll never let that happen again. But you know, I've seen love on the battlefield where men are sacrificing themselves to save other people, or you know, to do what they can, and that I think combat shows you the two extremes. Combat shows you the nastiness out of people Mm -hmm. and it shows you the pure good that's in the world. And, you know, unfortunately we've all witnessed that. And, and, but I couldn't agree with you more soldiers, you know, soldiers and people, not just soldiers, man, in the business community, if you can build trust, transparency, and love in your organization, man, people respond to that and they will do whatever it takes. Like right over here, coming back from the day off to solve a problem. You know, this lady that I work with right here just came back in the office. You know, just, hey, I got to get this job done. And you're getting the job done for the team. Right. That's not about her. And that's just something, you know, I hope we can build that. I hope I can build that everywhere I go. But I couldn't agree with you more.
0: No, that's absolutely true. Here's a good spot for a break. I'm a huge fan of how Clay views the teams he builds in the military and business as family. And no, I'm not talking about the families with the tie-dyed reunion T-shirts from Crazy Aunt Barbara who crowd your beach vacation. I'm talking about the teams that take punishment together, build each other up, and defend one another no matter the circumstance. Those teams deserve to look as cool as possible, and Emblem Athletic can help you get them there with awesome custom gear. The process is super simple. All you have to do is get an idea of what you want the gear to look like, take a style quiz, and work with their incredible team to meet your vision. They will make sure your unit's needs are met and you get what you want with their 100% satisfaction no sweat guarantee. A team that endures together, builds unbreakable bonds with unshakable pride. That's exactly what Emblem built into their no-sweat guarantee. Just like your bond as a team, your design will never fade, crack, peel, or crap out. Head to emblemathletic.com and get started on the right gear for your unit or organization so they can show that pride every chance they get. Now let's get back to Clay. So we've jumped into uh, to Iraq a little bit. Let's let's continue down that road. So you're in Kirkuk. You know, what was it like there? I think everybody... Based on where they were in Iraq, has a different experience. Like, what kind of missions were you doing? Like,
1: what? Stupid. I was doing stupid missions, driving around, waiting to get blown up. My job as a 23 year old platoon leader was to get the Kurds and the Arabs to get along. That was my job. Yeah. And I just remember going, cool, a thousand years of them not getting along. But I think, yeah, check, I'll be able to handle this. But it was just. It was, a, it was a different experience. I mean, I remember them. I was only really there two or three months before I got moved to that task force. And they would blow up a school to kill the Kurdish police chief. And they murdered like 40 kids. And I'm like, just shoot the guy. You want to assassinate the police chief? Well, shoot him. I yeah. don't care. That's your, this is your war. Do what you want to do. But you got to blow up a school to do it. I, I was The non-respect for human life was shocking to me. It was a very interesting dynamic. We ran missions with the Peshmerga up north who were great soldiers. I remember getting called into a compound one time, and me and my four trucks and my soldiers sitting outside going, Hey, um, ALT, hey you want us to mine these trucks? And I looked around and there must have been two hundred to two hundred and fifty Peshmerga soldiers in and around the compound. Yeah. And I was like, Nah, everybody just go inside, leave one guy to watch the trucks. Everybody go inside and eat. And I was like, because if they want to get us, they already got us. Like, we're done. <laughs> so we went in and ate with the Kurdish governor. Or I can't remember. Or he was a senator or whatever he was. And, uh, you know, gave our commitment to supporting them and their fight against terrorism at, at that time. And obviously things have changed now, but it was a, it was, yeah, cool. it was, was yeah, an interesting experience.
0: Well, they have changed and some they haven't.
1: I got asked. I was going to get moved to a different company, and my battalion commander asked me, hey, you, you want to be an XO or I'll give you another platoon because we got a junior company commander and some junior PLs and I'd, I'd been a platoon for about 15 months. And I looked at him and I said, no officer wants to be an XO. And I got a second platoon, I got a line platoon. And we're running direct action hits against Al Qaeda in Iraq. And that's where the black patch comes from. Yeah. Uh, it was, you know, sterile uniforms and all that stuff running around Iraq. And our battle space was Iraq. We went everywhere. And You know that was all A.Q.I. type stuff, and it was just a that was a wonderful experience. I mean, my career ended abruptly, but I had a lot of fun. You know, getting to fight, you know, bad guys or at least chase them and things like that.
0: That's kind of one of the interesting things about Iraq as an experience for units is the way that operationally units were set up. There was a lot of really neat little things that you could find yourself doing that not everybody is going to be able to do. You Mm. could be a landowner where you you basically run that little battle space and, and all the little projects and all the little combat actions that take place yeah. in them uh you could be kind of a standard platoon and you get thrown into a situation like that and you can yeah. go and operate in really neat and special ways that yeah. you know otherwise it, you, you you wouldn't have the support and you wouldn't have like the battle assets
1: oh yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. That, that
0: any other platoon leader would have yeah
1: no we had a lot of assets that was a lot of <laughs> it was a lot of fun i i really i truly enjoyed it i mean i You know, my second platoon was a lot different. I got put in Alpha Company. You know, you're hurt because you're leaving your your guys, you know. Mm -hmm. And I go to this new platoon, and these guys were just about as squared away as you could get. I mean, and I'm not even joking. I mean, my NCOs were amazing. My soldiers were amazing. But the first mission we ran, we got dropped off. It had rained, and it was like December and we kind of had this practice run of doing these direct action hits because, you know, our guys weren't used to it that much. And they dropped us two kilometers north of where they were supposed to drop us off. And we had to walk through waist-deep crops in freezing cold in Iraq. And the platoon in front of us got stuck. And so I just remember walking, and, and I'm, I'm following the lead squad. And there was a guy who was just dragging. He said, he's making all these noises. And I grabbed him, and I'm pulling him. And it's, it's two in the morning, mind you. It's freezing cold. It's just the worst. This is the worst thing ever. It's just unbearable. Yeah. And so I'm walking. And this is my first mission with these guys. And my platoon sergeant was 43 years old. I'm 25 at this time. He had a break in service. He's a little bit older to take care of his family farm. Great guy from North Carolina. And so we're walking. and We're on the radio. And we got to hit this target because there's another unit hitting a similar target. We got to get there at a certain time. Well, the first platoon, I get a call from the commander is not they're they're stuck. They can't move. All right, Hinch, you you know uh, first first platoon, you got to jump them. So we jump them, start going around them, and we're trying to hit the target. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to drag this guy now, and he's just whining and crying. He's sticking the barrel of his weapon down in the mud, so now mm-hmm. he can't even really shoot or whatever. Terrible. And finally, I take his pack off. I throw his pack on my back, and I'm like, all right, now I'm still trying to drag him. So his team leader turns around. Team leader was real squared away. And he goes, hey, Sergeant, I got him. And I said, what did you call me? He goes, LT, is that you? I said, yeah, don't ever call me that again. And I was like, <laughs> which I actually took as a compliment, right? I, you know, as a <laughs> I <lieutenant>, would too. <laughs> as a lieutenant, you take it as a compliment if your guys think you're an NCO. So he called me Sergeant. And I was immediately, oh, hey, LT. I was like, shut up. I got this turd. And so I'm dragging him. And finally, this guy starts crying. And I said, all right, I can't deal with this. You know, we, We've got to hit a target. There's other people that depend on us. So I leaned over. I said, are you scared? <laughs> yeah, I'm scared. Are you scared? Yeah, I'm scared. He's crying. I said, okay, do you quit? Yeah, I quit. Do you quit? Yeah, I quit. I took two infrared chem lights. I put it in his helmet and I called up to my platoon sergeant, one seven, so-and-so sitting in the mud, two IR chem lights. I'm hitting a target. Boom. And we moved out. So we go hit the target. We do what we need to do. No casualties, no KIAs, you know, killed in action, no nothing. But we got some intelligence. And this was a quick mission, like like 18 hours. We go in, hit them. We're waiting for the birds to come in to get us. And my platoon sergeant is finally able to get close to me. And he is livid. He is furious. He hadn't run a mission with me yet. And he's like, you can't just fire people in the middle of a mission. And I went, I just did. What's your point? He was like, sir, you can't just, I said, this man quit on his team. He's done. I said, you put him on a mid team, you send him up to battalion. I don't care because, I mean, think about it, you know, yeah, we're about to go into direct action hits against known Al Qaeda targets and you want to concern about this guy's feelings. We can't have that. This guy's done. He's done around the rest of our guys because, you know, he was cancer to the culture and a cancer is going to spread. Oh yeah. Fear spreads. You know that. And so I, we could sickness. We couldn't have that, so that was that was first mission on that task force, man. It was a, It was an interesting one.
0: Yeah. So you get this task force, you're doing these missions. Well, what happened? You know, You said that it came to an abrupt end. How'd that abrupt end? Happen? <laughs>
1: I don't watch where I walk, Joey. that's the problem. No. <laughs> so uh, May 10, 2008, running a uh, you know a night raid against a known al- Qaeda operative in Iraq. I always worked with Navy Special Warfare EOD Explosive Ordnance Disposal guys who were just great warfighters. Actually, um, one of
0: the, one of those is one of my best friends from Birmingham, Alabama. He ended up doing that exact. Oh, same really? Thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. just
1: amazing. So we were in a, my, this. The second mission we ran was a rip out with the 82nd. Yeah, and we got into a real good gunfight, and it was with EOD guys. And mm-hmm. I realized right away, like these these guys are these guys are legit. I mean, they they reacted and <laughs> did they. So May 10, 2008, conducting a night raid, landed about 1 in the morning. We were always at night. We only operated at night. And uh, it was a hard landing, so my guys were kind of besheveled. Um, and the battalion had already screwed up our schedule because we slept during the day, but they had to get us, like, new armor, body armor, away body. armor. So everybody was jacked up. Yeah. And uh, so now we have a hard landing. I think I had a couple guys that were hurt a little bit. Now, you know, not bad, but, you know, sprained ankles and, you know, hurt their twisted knees or whatever. And so we start hitting these targets and I was detached from the main element. Usually my platoon was the main lead effort. And this one, we were way down South away from the main element, which was North, probably about five kilometers, maybe it's three kilometers. And there was a, you know, the insurgent training camp because there was monkey bars, right? Or something like that. And so we start looking at these old buildings and there's heat signatures, and the thermals. So we're thinking, all right, there might be IEDs. Let's just wait till daytime. Well, from all the experience I had, I didn't really think there'd be anything there. What I was trying to do was to clear this in about an hour and then get about west, uh, northwest seven kilometers, uh, where I thought the real guy would be because there was a highway to the east and I didn't think he would be right there. Right. Yeah. He would, he would have a buffer village. That was, I don't know why that's what I thought. And so We start clearing and I had rolled two gun positions across this kind of like gravel road or dirt road. And when our graphics told us that the wadis weren't flooded, well, when we got there, they were. So somebody knew we were coming. So they kind of funneled us and we still had to walk. But anyway, so I stepped on a pressure wire IED um, while moving south. And it was connected to a 122 millimeter mortar round, which has a 5 to 7 meter kill radius. Uh, I took my right leg off. Uh, My radio operator lost his eye because his night vision goggles came back and crushed his eye. And he has rods in his femurs now because the blast uh, jacked his legs up. Uh, My uh, 55-year-old Iraqi defectee uh, interpreter cowboy got lower body extremity injuries, uh, things like that. And then I had about 10 guys. I think in in total 10 or 12 were actually wounded, I believe, because Mm -hmm. the blast was so big. Yeah. Um, and I was just lucky enough the way that it blew underneath me. It took my leg, and I, I almost lost my left leg. Um, but it's amazing, I man. Yeah, you know, it's amazing, man. I, I fell. I, I felt like a wave of water hit me. But I'm a meathead, so I'm thinking I'll muscle through it. And I didn't because my well, oops, my leg wasn't there. And um, you know, my team leader in front of me, uh, Sergeant Oliver. This is what people don't talk about. Sergeant Oliver, one, two in the morning. A bomb goes off behind him. He turned around in the middle of the dark and he ran into the crater. He put a tourniquet on my right leg with another one of my soldiers and put a tourniquet on my left leg. And my right leg was already gone. And Sergeant Oliver, they they treated me, I was on my back for about an hour and a half waiting for the bird to come in. They gave me two shots of morphine. They kept me awake. I was awake the whole time. Uh, my guys were trying, to, I was joking with them, you know, asking if asking if other stuff was okay, you know, in that region. And, um, you know, trying to joke, trying to, you know, it is what it is. And uh, I knew they lied to me, right? They told me my legs were okay. Like I couldn't move my body. I was in shock, but I could talk to them and they put me on a poncho and I knew my leg was gone when they picked me up on the poncho and my left leg flopped over and my right leg didn't. And the only thing I could think at that point was fuck, (laughs) you know, I was like, oh man, but, um, you know, that's what happened. They got me on the bird and I spent, I guess maybe an hour or whatever it was. It felt like an hour. I don't honestly know the time, but um, I was like fighting the flight nurse medic guy. like Cause all I could think was if I find a ma- a gas mask, I wanna go to sleep. That's all I wanna do, I wanna go to sleep. So I'm fighting this guy. I'm pretty sure I was just fist fighting this dude or dudette, whoever it was. And finally landed in Baghdad and somebody grabbed me and I just remember having a mask and put a mask on and I passed out and I woke up the next day. But you know, Sergeant Oliver, he spent four more days on that objective, clearing Al-Qaeda. And they had to drop in new clothes for him because he was covered in my blood. And he he told me, you know, later on that he he tasted my blood. You know, that'll affect him for the rest of his life. And fifteen of my soldiers walked over this IED. It was in the middle of a gun position, which is how so many guys got hit. We had good mm-hmm. spacing. There were yeah. five guys sitting on a gun position. I think we we think we might have rolled Constino wire over it. And my soldiers took that man. My soldiers took that so hard that they ever let me get hurt. And my wife just tells me I'm the fattest one. That's how I stepped on it, you know. But, <laughs> but, but really, it was it. It's war, man. You know. And I, 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 you know, you try to find reason. Sometimes the enemy's gonna get you. And I know, you know, we have classmates, we have friends, we have soldiers that are dead. They're gone. And, you know, they could have been the best soldier in the world or the worst. But sometimes man, sometimes it happens, you know, and my guys took it hard. And the only thing I thought to myself was I'm glad it's me and not them. And I, and I truly believe that. I think a lot of, I think a lot of people think that, you know, is I'm glad it happened to me and not my boy or whatever, you know? And then at the same time, that has always motivated me that they gave me a second chance. When I told them on the battlefield, I want to die, let me die. They didn't. And I have this wonderful life that I've been able to lead past that. Um, I have children because of uh, Doc Williams. The kid was 19 years old when he saved my life, and my 10-year anniversary of getting blown up. He was at my house, and we had a big party. And I just—I told him, I said, "Doc, I have this because of you." And you know, we were able to have that closure. But a lot of people don't get that closure, Mm -hmm. you know. And I just—I have two beautiful daughters, and I said, "They're here because of you." There's no other reason that any of this is here other than Sergeant Oliver, Doc Williams, and the medics and the You know, all of that is the only reason that I'm here. So that's what happened to me, man. I've tried to make the best out of it past that, but, you know, it is what it is.
0: Well, take me back to the moments. You're awake the whole time, but obviously I don't think you're going to remember everything about it. Yeah, no. No, but take me through some of the thoughts that that stick out through the hour and a half that you wait. Because I know you, I know for a fact that what you said is true about you joking with them, (laughs) (laughs) but... uh, there's got to be so much more going through your mind in those long moments.
1: Well, you're dead, man. Was the first thing I was to say you asked me what I was thinking about. I was thinking about Mr. T from Rocky 3. Pain, that's all I felt, man. How yeah. I, no, but it was um I didn't think. I really didn't. I I wanted to die. I was dead. I gave up. It it was over, you know. And you know, you don't really think about it at the time cuz you're in shock, but then you and then you wake up and you're in so much so much drugs that you're trying to make the best of it, you're trying to be positive positive. and depression didn't I had 40 surgeries cuz I had a bunch of revisions on my leg cuz it was got infected and you know, yeah. who knew Iraq was dirty? Um Imagine that. And then I had I've had five ear surgeries cuz my ears are blown out real bad cuz the high pitch and I have prosthetic ear bones and I still wear hearing aids. But depression hit me when i was in the malone house in an apartment by myself my wife had gone back to work and i, I remember watching the movie what is it not bruce almighty the other one was steve carell evan almighty evan almighty yeah and it's a funny movie you know but it's got a message there and i started crying man and i just remember thinking to myself what in the world who am i and i would stare at myself in the mirror because my body's all deformed right it's all weird i got scars and And you just have to find this new place of what you look like. And so that depression kicks in and you, it's, I'm assuming everybody goes through it at different points, different places, but everybody goes through it too in their transition. When you get out of the military, when you get out of a sport, whatever it is, you got to go through that transition. There's a depression to it. Cause who, who am I? Like, you know, like I define like honor graduate to me at ranger school. I was like, thank God I finally found something that I'm good at. It wasn't, (laughs) it wasn't physics, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And then I found something I was good at and then I wasn't that good at it because I got wounded. So was I good at it? You know, I I wanted to, I never wanted to be a general, but I wanted to be a small unit guy the rest of my life. Yeah. And I thought that was my life. And now what the hell, you know, it's got to change. So that's what I went. I mean, that was really what I went through. But at the time I didn't think about it. I just knew that I was meaner than hell in Germany. They were trying to give me TBI inspections and all this stuff. And I was like, leave me alone, you know, just leave me alone. And officers get their own room. Sergeant Tran my RTO would not let them take me from him and he would guard the door with broken femurs missing his eye he would guard the door and uh <laughs> his angry little man but he's my family you know and he just he took care of me um maybe even when i didn't need it but those are the things i remember and soon after you find a new life the depression goes away all that struggle goes away so and you find other things to to focus on but
0: yeah what was that experience going through And I'll be honest, I'll be open. Yeah, I went through that too. I was a pretty good platoon leader. I don't know, Mm -hmm. at least that was the general impression that I got. I knew I was a much better company commander, (laughs) Um, crazy enough. But what I didn't know was what was I without that? And I didn't really get that. I don't know. I'm not even sure if I figured that out yet, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. But I I think what I'm doing now is, you know, I'm— pretty good at it. I'm, I'm making my way, but I know I have other things in my life and I've kind of found my identity outside of that. Yeah. What was that like for you? You have that moment of realization or you have that moment, you know, that you described looking in the mirror and you're like, what the hell am I? What, what about that path back?
1: Yeah, man, I, I got to tell you my favorite story to tell and it's, it's hard for me to tell, but it's a uh, important one. For some reason, I gave myself a year to feel sorry for myself. I don't know why it seemed like a good, like easy number right like year like just feel sorry for yourself man yeah because i don't think i'd ever felt sorry for myself before but i was like now is the right time right this has happened to me i can be a victim i hate that word but anyway so uh i also hate the words wounded warrior but that's a whole nother topic yeah um so my wife convinced me to go to Vail, Colorado, and I'm from South Texas, man. I've never skied or snowboarded, so I'm, oh, I can't ski, I can't snowboard, I can't learn, I'm a cripple, you know, and I'm feeling sorry for myself. And there's, there's a guy there uh, named Jonathan who'd been burnt head to toe, fuel dumped on him, missing his hands, you know, his head's burnt, face is burnt, you know, he's, he's, he's hurting, you know.
0: Yeah,
1: I think he was a 21-year-old Hispanic kid. And he was living in San Antonio, but I think he was also from San Antonio. There's Brook Army Medicals there as the burn center for the Army. Yeah. And his fiance, I think she was 19 or 20. So they're 19, 20, 21. And uh, they're both kind of short, like portly people, right? So the last night, the firemen have this great spaghetti social, and you hang out and you drink. And which is a great idea, just free-flowing alcohol and skiing with amputees. It's just like this <laughs> that's a recipe for disaster. But no, it worked out. But so we go, and... I'm sitting there and having a drink and the the CEO of Frontier Airlines had sponsored it. He's got Patron on every table. And I get up and I go to the firehouse restroom. And it's a firehouse restroom. So it's just a toilet and a sink. It's real small. I can't even turn around, you know? And so then my wife goes in and she comes out and she's like, dang, that bathroom's small, you know? And this is, I'm sorry, this is exactly about eight months after I'm wounded. So I haven't hit a year yet. So in the middle of all this, Jonathan gets up with his fiance and they shove themselves into this bathroom. And I'm so selfish, I'm so conceited, I am so self-absorbed that I'm going, why would they go in there together? And I looked at my wife and I am oh my God, and I nudged her and I said, they went in there together. My wife goes, why would they go in there? Oh my God. I said, Jonathan has no hands. For the rest of his life, he will depend on somebody to help him do the most intimate things that we do as people. And I took a shot at Patron. And I, I said, I'll never feel sorry for myself ever again. And I've never looked back. The hard part for me to tell the story is the fact that Jonathan doesn't know the effect that he had on my life. He, did, he wouldn't remember me from Adam. But though there's people like that that have struggled more than any of us have. And that's why you wake up every day and that's why you do what you do. Because like I said before, I, I always thought that people were like, oh, I saw somebody die or I witnessed this. And I, and I think to myself, you're selfish. You know, think about our friend's mother who, you know, they buried their child. And for you to feel pity because you saw something bad, I hate to say it, but those people make me sick to my stomach. And I I know that stress is an issue. I'm not saying that post-traumatic stress and trauma is not real. But for me, it was always stop feeling sorry for yourself because you at least get to breathe and feel and do things that they will never do again. And guys like Jonathan, or some of these guys that are quad amputees, or that they deal with these struggles that we will never, ever, ever understand. And so, Jonathan changed my life, and I think about him every day, and how um, how I have to do better every single day, you know. And that's just he changed my life. So,
0: no, I think that's a perfect point. I've felt the similar thing. I don't think I've ever ever had that experience but definitely the impetus to go out there and and earn it Mm -hmm. right yeah i have every tool that i've been fortunate enough that god has kept with me to go out and do things that some of these guys some of these girls yeah they won't get to do again and that's that's absolutely an incredible point what about your wife going through all of this you were married when it happened yeah she was with you you know i think that's kind of a tale that doesn't really get to get told that much going through that completely life-altering event yeah her.
1: you know a lot of people break up man it's uh, they don't talk about it but a lot of folks that are married when this happens they they divorce mm-hmm. i just went on a trip with some guys and i think every well not every single one but several of them had been married when they were wounded lost a limb they were uh they're divorced you know, at least these guys now, 10, 15 years later, they'll tell you, hey, look, man, a lot of this was my fault. I couldn't deal with it, you know. And I met a guy on this trip, which I never go on these veteran trips, but I went on one. And one guy, he was like, look, man, I, I got divorced, and it was it was my fault. I was an asshole. And yeah. he said she couldn't deal with me anymore. And, you know, and, I, and you could see the remorse in his face because he— not a bad guy, but what he went through, he, he couldn't deal with it and she couldn't deal with him not being able to deal with it. Yeah. You know, I called my wife. I stole a nurse's phone in uh, in Baghdad the day after it happened. And I called my mother and I called my wife. And depending on who I'm telling the story to, that's who I called first. But so (laughs) I called my wife, you know, I said, Hey, you know, baby, I'm okay. Blah, blah, blah. But I want to let you know that I lost my leg. And I swear to God, the first thing my wife said to me was, well, now when you drink too much, I'll steal your leg. You can't run away from me. (laughs) And she made a joke about it. And, um, and I know when she hung up, she cried. I mean, I know that. And I know she was hurting and and what are you going to do? But she never really treated me differently. And you know, when I was at Walter Reed, my wife didn't go to all my therapy sessions because this is my job. And I, you know, a lot of guys weren't getting better because their wives and their kids were just hanging out in therapy. I'm like, don't come with me. I'm working out. What are you going to do? Spot me? Like, And so she went and got a job at the Office of Management and Budget in the White House and went back. She was an accountant. And so we went back to living our lives as normally as we could. And a lot of people don't do that. They want to be a victim. They want preferential treatment. They'll tell you they don't, but they do. And you'll see it through their actions, right? And I think for me, it was my family, my dad, my mom, my brother, my sister. Man, they just dogged me. They just... Obviously, they were all hurting. And only a fool would think that your purple heart, only you wear it. Your family wears that. your fa- I know my family wears. My, I know yeah. they were wounded when I was. And I know they hurt. But mama's not so much. Mama's always going to treat you like a baby. But, you know, my dad and my brother and, you know, not so much my sister. She's kind of like mom. But my dad my brother, but they dogged me like they're not going to treat me differently. You know, my brother pushed me in a wheelchair early on. Because I couldn't walk and I was you know, brand fresh and all that and and he could tell who I was that it was an embarrassment for me to be pushed in a wheelchair. And my family knows that about me when I walk through an airport, I don't board a plane first. you know, I went home to visit my family in Houston about a year after I lost my leg. soaking wet, it's hot, sweaty, it sucks, and my parents are calling me on my cell phone and I walked up, and my mom goes, "Why didn't you ride one of those carts?" And my dad smacked her in the arm. He goes, do you think your son would ever ride one of those carts? And he didn't have to tell me that it was a compliment. I took it as, I mean, they know me, you know. I've had bad days where I've had to use a scooter. (laughs) I can't keep up at Disney World. I got to use the scooter, man. My wife's wife's out of control on that. Ben Harrow makes us all look bad walking on two prosthetics. Oh, man. Yeah. but He's amazing. But that's just the way I looked at it is, you know, you just got to, I don't know, like you said, Work with what God gave you, man. That was my approach.
0: You know, and I think uh, going through some of the other parts of your story, too, I think there's parts of your personality that that I see. Because I know that there's parts of me that are the same way. Those same things that you were embarrassed if you couldn't do certain things that you knew you should be able to do professionally. Yeah. I think some of that, too, plays into the fact that you never want to accept help that you don't think you need. You never want to, you know, all those things are like, I can do this. I expect myself to be able to do this because I'm supposed to. Yeah. I think that's part of the special makeup of good leaders. I think that's part of the special makeup of people that have a certain attitude about life that say this, this is like, this shit's never going to get me down, man. Stubbornness. Stubbornness is a positive trait
1: sometimes. It is.
0: It's a very positive trait, but. People have
1: asked me, Joey, people have asked me, I've given speeches on resiliency and I give the same stupid joke. I go, I don't know how to spell it. (laughs) <laughs> and honestly, I don't, I think there's like seven eyes in it. I have no idea, but truth and lending, man, I don't, I don't know any other way. I called my grandfather and I called my dad, step-grandfather, step-dad, but they're, they're mine. I called them both and I said, look, I'm going to make it, I'm crying. I said, I'm going to make it through this because you, you taught me how to be a man. Yeah. And it's not a bad thing to be a man, right? For some reason we say that nowadays, but you take care of your family. I knew that whatever was thrown at me, I would overcome because I had these two male role models. And I needed that as a young man. My biological father wasn't in the picture. I had great coaches that now I look back and my high school coaches have no idea how many young men they've affected. And I'm, I've am i gone back and told them through Facebook years later thinking of these men probably don't realize what they have done and saved kids like me who may have gone the wrong route. But there are great male role models that affected me. and. It's pure stubborn it's a pure stubborn gene of I dare you to tell me I can't do something and I'm gonna squash your dumb ass when I do it because I I think a lot of us are like you're talking about combat vets, West you know, the West Point way. It's it's just it's the way we're made. I don't I don't know any other way to, to act.
0: Yeah. No, yeah, exactly. I think about the kind of person you are, I think about the things that you've done and how it's gotten you here. The recipe's not complex.
1: No, and no, it's, it's not.
0: But it, it's the same traits that you found success with earlier are the same traits that I see an opportunity and then I know I can do it or I think I can do it. So I'm yep. just going to go after it. You've built a company, you've sold it. You've then taken other opportunities and you continue to push. I don't yeah. Know, I'm, I not, never... I'm not sure you have the capability to let off the accelerator.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, well, my right foot is uh, made of metal, so it just stays on it. You know. Yeah. So. No, man, I I never asked myself why, I always asked myself why not. And then I consider this a second chance. This is all gravy, baby, past dying in combat, I mean, and what I mean by dying is like my heart didn't stop, but I, I gave up and people saved me and starting a company was just a learning experience in, in DC was working at a top secret facility. and solve government waste um, and I don't think necessarily it was done on purpose but I worked in an IED facility where people were just spending money because they thought the IED wasn't thing and the IED is not a thing. It, IED is a part of a close ambush and is a part of a system and you, I mean you know that. Oh yeah. But at the time in 2009, 2010 it just became this thing right. We're buying MRAPs and you know we're buying all this stuff and none of it has any value to the warfighter and I took that personal because you guys were still downrange. Right, you you you're my family. I took it that way. I took it personal, and I we're just wasting money. So I said, screw this. I can do it better. So I had to wait because I had to finish my master's degree and I was learning how to walk again. But worked on Capitol Hill for veterans and service members and their family members, GI Bill stuff like that. Yeah, and then started a company and I knew nothing. I had no idea what I was doing, no idea. I mean, I General Lennox, who became my business partner, was our superintendent. I didn't know. I never met him at West Point. I met him after I lost my leg, he used to have coffee with me. And I needed money, because I got two contracts before I knew what to do with it, and I had to make payroll. And he reached out to General McCaffrey, and McCaffrey was like, I don't know this guy, I'm spread too thin, because they were investing. yeah. And Bill was finally like, look, I'll be your business partner, I'll give you a loan, zero percent, and it's cool. And through hard work, but luck, you know what happens, I was able to pay him his money back. He gave me $50,000 and I paid him back I think in 15 months. And he had it was a four- year loan. and then when I sold the company, I was able to make him about a 6x return on that investment. And so really I look at it as a 7x because he got his money back in the beginning. You, yeah. a greedy. No, he was a, he's, yeah, he's a great man, mentor, friend. But I, I couldn't tell you through the details it would take a long conversation to do that. but I packed up shop and moved to Huntsville, Alabama. Mm-hmm. I'd been here twice. I'm from Texas, but I knew Redstone Arsenal's here. I'm not a retired general. I didn't need to be in the Pentagon and I'm a defense contractor. I hate to admit it now, but that's what I am. Right. And it was just, let's figure it out. You know, I knew nobody was going to work harder than me. And when I got here, you know, it was a little bit disheartening, Joey, because I'm not 100% disabled. I'm 90% disabled. I'm missing a leg, got a bunch of other wounds. I don't have any other issues. And I don't go whine to the VA to give me free money. So if you need it, go get it. I'm not saying don't. If you need it, you need to get the help. But I didn't need it, so I didn't go get it. Yeah. And so I'm in here talking trying to talk about working on defense stuff and guys want to talk to me about, oh, how'd you lose your leg? Well, I'm trying to feed my family. And so when I showed up prepared, knew what I was talking about, they knew I was working, they knew I'd studied, they didn't see me as a charity case, missing my leg. That changes your opinion of people. And I think that so many wounded vets, but really vets that struggle to get back in the workforce, I'm going, you have all of these skills that are needed, not just for your professional life, not just for your business. They're needed for America because we are missing role models that have perspective. And so many Americans have lost perspective. We got a lot of problems in America. We got to solve them. And I'm not saying we don't. Yeah. But I've been around the world about eight times. I've been to India, Thailand. You know, you've been a lot of places. And I'm like, okay, some of these places are pretty bad. And America needs work. We need some tweaking. But we're not as bad as everybody Thinks we are, or the people that live in America. You know, oh my Wi-Fi went out. What am I gonna do? You know, it's just it's crazy stuff. Yeah, first world problems. But no, man. So yeah, so I've been able to grow a little bit and start some companies. But um, that's that's it, it's it's more than just making money and all of that. It's about setting an example. That's, yeah, that's what I think about.
0: No, and I I just remember the experience of getting out, and I remember you kind of go through the whole thing with people are like, hey, well, you know, did you go talk to the folks from the VA about you know disability? And I was like. No,
1: mm-hmm.
0: I've got everything. What I sprained my ankle a couple of times, you know, and maybe I got a concussion, like that. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm, I can go out and I can do everything that I need to do. There's no reason for me to go ask for disability. Well, you know, if you, you can claim a lower back injury and nobody's ever gonna know mm-hmm. the difference. You can, you know, you can claim PTSD and nobody's ever gonna be able to be able to tell you that you don't have it. Can not dis- can disprove it. Yeah, and I'm like, no, that's that's called lying. Yeah, and that's called fraud. Yep, and. Not only that, that's completely disrespecting everybody that I know that actually has a wound and has issues and has gone through traumatic experiences and they can't get that out of their mind. And no, that's yep. wrong.
1: I, I, brother, I, I 100% agree with you. And I, I go back to that perspective of thinking about other people. And I couldn't agree with you more. You know, just because you can get free money, does that mean you should? I worked in DC on this topic and had a lot of Vietnam era, not combat Vietnam vets, but Vietnam era vets, yeah. staff people that were like, I thought you'd be more empathetic. And I'm going, I am for the people that need help. I know people that have post-traumatic stress disability money from going to airborne school and ranger school. That is a true story because they're claiming stress and you're going, that's just unreasonable. That's not what the legislation was put into place. And the biggest problem I had with post-traumatic stress stuff is it's not permanent. So you're demotivated to get better. If I say I'm better, you take away my free money. Right. So do you tell them you're getting better? Yeah. But we also didn't put money aside for true mental health providers. I have former soldiers that deal with serious mental health issues and stress because yeah. of what they saw happen to me and others in combat. Yeah, but they can But they can't get the help. Help's not there. And I'm going, so so you're telling me I'm not empathetic because I actually love my soldiers and want them to get help instead of just throwing feel-good money at people? I mean, you know, it's it, – but, but we can say that because we're veterans, right? When you get up right. on Capitol Hill, you get some politician. They go, oh, you're, you're not empathetic towards veterans. We're like, just because I say I got $50 million for veterans, but how did I exactly spend your taxpayer dollars? Yeah, I'm looking at return on investment for those veterans. That's what I'm looking for, not just me telling a bunch of constituents yeah. – oh yeah i spent a bunch of your damn money that that's not that's not yeah.
0: effective am i building a system that actually can endure that can help people that find themselves in the same position 20 years from now or am i just throwing money at the problem but like are you going to set up a system that actually helps that yep. actually it gives incentive for people to find help and get better yep or am i just going to say ah, i'm just going to give you some? i'm yeah. going to give you a paycheck
1: i got you some money so i can get reelected. yes yeah. that and i'm I won't go into that, but that's, you know, my opinion. Well, I can
0: shake my hand and say thank you for your service and yeah. feel better about myself at the end of the day. Oh, 100%. Yeah. I mean, we can dive into the political if you want.
1: No, I yes, everyone. Just if you're out there in the internet machine, I unsuccessfully ran for Congress in <laughs> North Alabama. No, I got 39% of the vote with only $200,000 against a five-time incumbent Republican. I ran as Republican against Republican because he votes against veterans and defense funding and i'll still say that to the day i die so maybe i'll get back in the political arena but um
0: Uh, i mean don't like the person myself
1: well you know it's (laughs) no no one does that's what's the weird part is but people vote on who they have heard their name it's it's strange politics but i struggle with politics because of the nuances of it you know i yeah i love debating and watching a 64 year old man get flustered because they're lying to you just so you know all of you out there they're They don't... Well, they don't lie. Let me take that back. They don't lie. They tell half-truths. Well, I didn't exactly do this, or I didn't do this, and we have forgotten what it means to serve people and all politicians. Yeah. And I believe more veterans should serve. Democrat, Republican, I don't care where you come from, but we're at a stupid place in America. We're stupid. We're being nasty to each other. There's no civility. And look, politics is probably never civil. I don't know. I wasn't around 100 years ago, but... I could have a conversation with somebody and I'll have a conversation with anybody. I don't have to, I don't have to agree with you, but nowadays we're at a stupid place where if I take a picture next to somebody who has a completely different opinion, well, clay just talked to so-and-so who's a, a communist. And I'm like, okay. And I was waiting in line at the chow hall to get food. Like, what are you, talk, like, what are you talking about? That's where we are in society yeah. and people are taking everything at face value and not understanding the complexities of issues that we face. So I don't know, man, I hope more veterans get into office, but, And I just hope even if I ran and lost unsuccessfully that there's a lot of others that go, you know what, hey, not why, but why not? Hell, give it a shot. You know, start a business, run for politics, do whatever you want to do. And I I think that more people like us that get in the community and show you that anything's possible, I I guess that's my takeaway, man, is, you know, nothing is impossible. Yeah. I was never intimidated at West Point by generals or even when I got in the service, like of colonels and stuff. And I remember people like, oh my God, you know, and I'm going, I was taught by colonels and generals. Like, I don't, I don't care. Now, there's a respect. I'm not saying I don't respect him. Absolutely. But I'm not going to get shaky because that individual is where I'll be in 30 years. Mm-hmm. That's the way I looked at it. You know, and I look at people that are in business leaders. I have tons of mentors. And the only reason why I have tons of mentors is because the people that I respect, they know how hard I work. Yeah. And when I ask them a question, they'll answer me. And there's other people out here, well, how did you get to talk to so-and-so? And I go, because that individual knows that I'm grinding every day. Every single day I'm grinding to, to be the best that I can be. Yeah. And that's, I think that has served me well. I think it'll serve more well. And, you know, people like us, Joey, it's just, that's where we come from. And I think, you know, more people get back into the workforce. You're going to see a lot of positives in the future. Right? Yeah. Un- unfortunately, we got a lot of negatives right now. I think there's going to be more positives. So. No, I think so too. You know, that's, that's the one thing. Everybody's going to have a stance that they that they have, but you also have to listen to your people. Mm-hmm. And you know, like what I love the last election. Look, you don't like Trump? Did you vote? No. Then shut up. Don't talk to me anymore. If you don't exercise your right to vote, then you shut your mouth. Because there are people dying around this world trying to gain the freedom to vote. Right. And you people take it for granted. And when, <laughs> that kills yeah. me, man.
0: And when you see a, a, a minority of our population actually voting. Yes. And you see such a, when you see a minority of people actually voting. Yeah. Well, what did you do? Yes. Right?
1: My, my election, I think our voter turnout was 12%. Yeah. And we knew we were going to lose when we started to you know, get into some of the... I mean, we knew if it was low voter turnout, we'd lose. Yeah. And it's just it's the way it is, right? Yeah. He has his base. He's been here a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, by the way, anytime if you're running for office, anytime you meet a person, you'll never meet a person who's not going to vote for you. It never happens. Anybody you meet is like, oh, hell yeah, I love you. You're amazing. Yeah, yeah. And they go behind you and vote for somebody else but uh but you know it was it was a great experience but you're right man I mean it's it's guys like us that have seen some of these things around the world and you're going man you you know seven percent voter turnout but yet you've got the news media complaining and comedians complaining and I'm going comedy hey that's your job you got to make fun of the president I'm with you on yeah yeah absolutely you make fun of those politicians all you want right they have enough ego to go around by the way but I'm going if you didn't vote and you're an American you have to blame yourself. Like, the the big thing is always uh, term limits. And I'm going, that's what they have. You vote every two years. You vote every six years for a senator. Well, we need term limits. That's why the Founding Fathers set up those types of elections so you can vote them out. The fact that you're not educating yourself and you're just going with the person who has the biggest pocketbook on TV. Right. Like, that's on... The person that's sitting in front of you. Yeah, that's on us. That's that's all on us. Well,
0: one of the things that... When I hear people complain about voting and they complain about politics, it always brings me back. maybe this is a story I need to tell more often. I was in a small valley in Afghanistan and we had a mission to go out and maintain security on election day. Mm -hmm. And I sent my platoons out. We had to stay very far away from the voting centers. Mm -hmm. Well, we found out why nobody showed up to the voting centers. (laughs) I found out through several sources. You know how many ballots came out of my small valley? I don't know. I I think it's probably like (laughs) 10,000. When people talk about I'm not being represented, I'm like, you think you're not being represented. You're being being told by someone else that you're not being represented. You are not representing yourself. You have every right and every capability. Chances are there's a voting center within a couple miles of your house Mm -hmm. or wherever you live. You're not represented because you're not representing yourself. That's just the long and short of it. Everybody has access to the information. Yeah, you know, It's not like these places where somebody's threatened my life if I show up at a voting summit. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
1: In conclusion, get out and vote, you lazy bums. That's, that, yeah, there that's you go. our message for the there day. You go. Anyway. <laughs> this is great, man.
0: No, this is awesome. It's awesome. One thing I just want to add on is when Clay mentions the Black Patch, he's addressing his family-run distillery out of Huntsville, Alabama. And I really do mean family-run. Gary Cooper, Clay's dad, is the master distiller. Black Patch has a delicious collection of whiskeys, like the bourbon and rye that I've tried and loved, as well as a blue agave tequila. They're distributed in Alabama and Texas, but you can order online and have it shipped to wherever you are. You can also request them through your distributor. Support a veteran-owned and operated business and earn every drop with Black Patch. One last thing before we part. Letting down those that count on you is truly the worst feeling. No one wants to be Oppum from Saving Private Ryan. Emblem Athletic can help you be a true Johnny on the Spot and ship your gear anywhere in the world. Head to emblemathletic.com to start your custom shop. Thank you so much for taking time to listen to the show. If you liked it, please share it with family and friends, and please consider leaving a rating or, even better, a review. It really does help. And while you're at it, hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you'd like to connect with the show, you can visit the website at nstiwpodcast.com. Follow on Twitter at nstiwpodcast1 or on Instagram or Facebook at nstiwpodcast, where you will receive additional notifications as well as additional content. If you're enjoying this podcast and would like to see it continue to dive into bigger and better stories, consider donating. Navigate to the website where you can read how the donation will be used and you can easily donate over PayPal. On a final note, if you or someone you know has a story worth telling, please submit a summary via a contact form on the website for consideration. Thanks again and get out there and do something worth telling about.